This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. Gateless Gate, Case 41, Bodhidharma's Ease of Mind, Main Case. Bodhidharma sat in Zazen facing a wall. The second ancestor, Huika, stood for a long time in the snow. Finally, he cut off his own arm and presented it to Bodhidharma. He said, my mind is not at ease. Please, master, set it at ease for me. And Bodhidharma replied, bring me your mind and I will set it at ease for you. Huika said, I've searched for it everywhere, but I cannot find it. And Bodhidharma said, there, I've set it at ease for you. Woman's Commentary. The broken-toothed old foreigner proudly traveled 10,000 miles over the ocean. This was as if he were raising waves where there was no wind. Ultimately, he got only one disciple, but even he was maimed. Alas, he was a fool indeed. Woman's Poem. Coming from the West and directly pointing, this great affair was caused by the transmission the troublemaker who created a stir in Zen circles is, after all, you. <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago, Hojen Sensei and I led a retreat at the monastery on the four immeasurables, exploring this teaching through both uh, liturgy and the creative process. And uh, during the retreat, she brought up this koan, which has always been one of my favorites. Not so much the part about Wicca cutting off his arm, you know, which has always struck me as way too dramatic and, and really utterly unnecessary. I've had people ask me, you know, if I become your student, will you do anything in your power to help me awaken? And without hesitation, I've said yes. And then one person asked me, even cutting off my arm? Now, note that they, they didn't say they would cut off their arm. They were asking me if I would do it. <laughs> For them, no, no, not unless you were trapped somewhere and this was the only way to save your life. No, I would not cut off your arm. Um, and, you know, as the commentary says, now you, you end up with a maimed disciple. I and mean, what's the use of that? <laughs> and, and I should clarify that it's usually the young guys who ask me this question. The women seem to know better. But this, this image of Wicca standing in the, in the snow and his self-amputation, really what it, it is uh, meant to convey, I believe, is his determination. He is that desperate to free his mind from delusion. He is that eager to find a lasting kind of peace. And in fact, the, the tradition of Tangario, which is when a person sits all day in preparation for becoming a student in our, in our lineage, in our tradition, comes from the tradition where in China and in Japan, students would come to a monastery and it is said would be turned away because that, that's part of the way of Zen. Instead of kind of inviting in, uh, we, we don't necessarily turn you away, but we stop you at all these different points. Are you really sure you want to do this? Yes, I, I am. Okay, you take another step. Are you really sure? Are you really sure? 
and, and it is said that the tradition in, in Zen was that a, a monastic would come, or a prospective monastic would come to a monastery, and the gate would be closed. And he, because it was usually it was, it was men, um, would just sit outside in the snow, rain or shine, you know, waiting to be acknowledged, waiting to be let in, waiting to be admitted to study, to study the Dharma. And we, we've, what we've done is we've um, taken the spirit of that, you know, the, the spirit of really sitting with yourself, with that determination, with that aspiration, with that intent, and um, we offer you know, a day where you're really just with yourself, with that, that commitment, that step you're about to take. But this, this, this koan and this act of Wicca um, reminds me of a scene of Hermann Hesse's Siddhartha. If you've read it, you know, in, in his version, the Buddha doesn't leave in the middle of the night. He doesn't leave his uh, wife and, and child. He doesn't steal away. And it's a nice version of the story because it doesn't leave anyone out. And so in this version, Siddhartha squarely faces his choice and asks his father for permission to become a shramana, a a seeker. And what leads to this choice is his deep, deep unease. And this is in in Hesse's words. Siddhartha was loved by everyone. He was a source of joy for everybody. He was a delight for them all. But he, Siddhartha, was not a source of joy for himself. He found no delight in himself. Walking the rosy paths of the fig tree garden, sitting in the bluish shade of the grove of contemplation, washing his limbs daily in the bath of repentance, which was um, a ritual that he did as a Brahman, sacrificing in the dim shade of the mango forest his gestures of perfect decency, everyone's love and joy, He still lacked all joy in his heart. Dreams and restless thoughts came into his mind, flowing from the water of the river, sparkling from the stars of the night, melting from the beams of the sun. Dreams came to him, and a restlessness of the soul. My mind is not at ease. I seem to have everything, a partner, a home, A little money or a lot. I have health enough. I am loved enough. Then why am I not at ease? Maybe for some of us it's not quite that straightforward. We look out at the world and we see nothing but conflict. Nothing but clamor and strife and forces that seem to to feed on our very discontent. And we think, how can I be at ease in the midst of all this chaos? But for Siddhartha, it was the first. He did have everything from a conventional point of view. And still, he lacked something fundamental. He could tell at a certain point there was something missing. And so he very respectfully requests his father's permission to leave home and become a wanderer, a seeker of truth. And that ease 
a seeker of that ease that eludes him. And Siddhartha's father, who was a a very well-known, very recognized, very highly regarded Brahman, and who fully expected his son to succeed him in all his social and religious and political responsibilities, he was not at all pleased by this request. And he says no. He says no, and he says, do not ask me again. I do not want to grant this wish. And Siddhartha remains unmoving. He's standing, and his father is sitting in front of him. And they just look at each other for a long time without saying anything. And Siddhartha just goes on standing, silent, impassive, and he goes on standing hour after hour until day becomes night and the stars turn in the sky, and finally the Brahman can't stand it anymore. He asks him, what are you waiting for? And Siddhartha very simply says, you know, you know what? And the father gets irate, and he just, he stands up, he leaves the room, and he goes to bed. But of course he can't sleep. And he just paces back and forth in his room, and every hour he goes to the window and he looks at where Siddhartha is still standing motionless. And he stands like that the whole night, the story says. And just before dawn, his father returns to the room and he faces him again. And again, he asks, what are you waiting for? And Siddhartha says, you know. Will you always stand and wait? I will stand and wait. You'll be tired. I'll be tired. You'll fall asleep. I won't. You'll die. I'll die. And you'd rather die than obey your father? He asks. And Siddhartha says, I've always obeyed you. And he just keeps standing. The father sits down again. He thinks some more. He looks at his son and he sees in his trembling knees and in his impassive, mountainous face that he's already left home. He's already left him, his father, certainly. And so finally he stands and he just touches Siddhartha on the shoulder and he says, okay, go, be a shramana, find this ease that you're looking for. And when you do, come back and teach me. Isn't that a a, a wonderful moment? He could have just disowned him. He could have cut him off. And instead he says, okay, go. And come back and teach me what you've learned. He could no longer sit unmoving in the face of determination like that. In the face of Siddhartha's towering clarity. And so very much like this, in this koan, Huika comes to Bodhidharma wanting to see, wanting to clarify the nature of his unease, the nature of the self that is uneasy. And the story says, the full story says that he just stands in the snow waiting for Bodhidharma to acknowledge him, and and Bodhidharma at first just ignores him. And there is, 
in fact, such a teaching, and it's, and it's prevalent. There's a number of koans in the, in the Zen literature that, that show the teacher just ignoring the student. Which, of course, immediately forces us back on ourselves. It leaves us alone to face what only we can face. Because the teacher can't liberate us. And so that, that um, apparent ignoring, that apparent turning away, just leads you right back here to the seat, as I was saying this morning. The only place where your practice can take place. And at the same time, I do want to acknowledge there is a, there's a cultural element, you know, to these, to these stories that I think is important to, you know, just to identify and not perpetuate. Because this, this standing in the snow and being left alone, cutting off the arm, you know, um, it gives Zen a particular tone. And Zen is known in a particular way. And I don't think it's always helpful. So, so to me, Zen is really the study of reality. It is, it is not about proving how tough you are, how independent. Because we're not independent. No one is independent. That's the whole point, is to see our complete, not just interdependence, but our interbeing. And so then, what, from that perspective, what is this leaving the student alone really about? But Bodhidharma goes on ignoring Huika for a while until this, the snow comes up to his knees. And Huika, desperate to show his true intent, cuts off his arm. But really think about it this way. In a moment of zazen, in a period of zazen, which thoughts are you willing to let go of to free yourself? How unprotected are you willing to be? How non-defensive? How gentle? How open? How fierce? How steady? How uncompromising? Because we all make deals with ourselves, don't we? This thought, this one is too good. This one I don't really want to let go of, or at least not yet. And why should I have to? It's not really hurting anyone. How much ease will we settle for? As Ajahn Chah said, one of my favorite teachings of his, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will be free. But first, there is the the admission which to me is critical. My mind is not at ease. Things are not okay. So even before we turn to another for help, just being able to admit things are not okay, that is a turning moment. And I've told this story before, which for me was framed uh, a little bit differently, but it was the first time uh, that I, if I had to look back at my life, the first moment of, of, of a turning, a kind of turning, 
I was, I was waiting to be picked up, and I was in a kind of in a restaurant. And I looked up, and there was a, kind of a long passageway, and there was a veranda. And out on the veranda, there was a family having a meal, just a Mexican family. And I'm from Mexico. And, um, and I looked up, and they looked very happy together. You know, the, the kids were, were smiling, and the parents seemed very engaged with them. And it was a beautiful day, so the sh- sun is shining down on them. I mean, they look so wholesome, you know, so good, and so happy. And I'm not exactly sure what happened. I wasn't thinking about anything in particular. I didn't have, well, I sort of did have a spiritual practice, but I didn't even know it at that, at that time. Um, and I looked up and I saw them, and the thought that came to me very strongly was, I don't want that. I was 15. And it took me years to really understand what I even meant when I said that. I don't want that. And it was really, I mean, now I can say, you know, that it was, it was, I don't want perhaps a conventional life. I don't want what I'm being told is so important to, to, you know, grow up, get a job, go to school, get a job, get married, have kids, make money so I can buy a house to put the kids in. I thought, there has to be more to life than that. And not because any of those aspects of a human life were in any way bad or, or unsatisfactory. But, but there was something about the, especially the message, the message that I was getting you know, growing up as I was, that just didn't seem fulfilling to me. And so sometimes the turning is more like Wicca. It, it is, uh, we're at that edge, perhaps, of, of despair or of desperation, where we're, we're clearly searching, we're clearly looking for help out of our deep unease, out of our suffering, and wanting desperately to put an end to it, or at least for someone to explain to, to us what in the world is going on. So sometimes it is very clear. At other times, it's, it's much softer. You know, everything does seem to be going well. But for some reason, we, we become drawn to zazen. We turn to practice. Perhaps we don't even know why. We can't yet say So it may not be a, an urgent fire on top of your head kind of thing. But let me ask you this. If somebody dropped out of the sky at this moment and just said to you, you can't practice anymore, it's forbidden, for whatever reason, it's not explained why, you are unable, you are not allowed to practice what would that be for you? How would you experience that if tomorrow you could not sit and the day after and the day after? And it's a question that I sometimes ask when a prospective student doesn't have or doesn't seem to have a burning question. 
I say, okay, well, what if you just, we turn things around? What if you weren't able to practice? Then what? And if you can answer this question honestly, it will give you a glimpse into your relationship to your practice, relationship to your mind, relationship to your life. Because if it's not, if it wouldn't be a big deal, you can take zazen, you can leave it. That says something. My mind is not at ease. But then what is this unease and what causes it? Trungpa Rinpoche used to speak of of delusion as our neurosis. And some other Tibetan uh, teachers take that that up, use that term very deliberately. And in general, in general, in, in Vajrayana Buddhism, there is a clear understanding of the importance to work with our emotions, particularly what they call disturbing or strong emotions, what the early sutras called the kleshas or defilements, because they are at the very heart of our suffering. And, and Zen doesn't that I have found, Zen doesn't speak to this so directly. You, you're, you're in general, you're kind of really left on your cushion to deal sometimes with these storms, these raging storms. And so I myself, you know, turned to the, the early sutras and then turned to some of the Vajrayana teachings where it is, it is spelled out a little bit more in a little bit more detail how to work with these. And it is said that there are five overarching disturbing emotions. Attachment, anger, ignorance, pride, and envy. And so other manifestations, sadness, anxiety, guilt, we can really see them as as variations of these um, overarching emotions. And what happens is that we perceive reality through these five filters. It is actually impossible for us to perceive it otherwise until we clarify, until we touch reality directly. But otherwise, coming from the perspective of self, we are, we are filtering our experience. Now, we could also be experiencing, of course, of course joy or equanimity, loving kindness, but if it's through, if it is through one of these disturbing, disturbing emotions, then what we see, what we experience is filtered through them. That becomes our perception. And so often the result of that, of course, is conflict. So let's say, you know, you work, you work at a company and um, a new person joins and you immediately feel drawn to them. You know, you think they're funny, they're attractive, they're smart. And you find yourself really looking forward to spending time with them, looking for opportunities to be with them. And whether you're aware of it or not, you start to view your interactions through the, the filter of attachment and maybe also of pride. They seem to like your company too. And it doesn't even necessarily have to be romantic. or Maybe it is a, a kind of a friendship, a, a, a bond, an understanding with this person. And you notice that they, too, seem to enjoy your, your company. They seem to like you. And you really feel good about this, naturally, naturally. 
And so you go on like this for, for a while, and there is a particular relationship between the two of you. And you think, you know, how wonderful really your life is, and what a nice job you have managed to, to procure for yourself, and what wonderful people you're working with. Until you hear that they're going for the same promotion that you've been um, angling for for the last several months. And there's a series of tests. Your, your boss creates a series of tests, and the other person gets the promotion, not you. And instantly, your attachment turns to aggression, your pride to envy. Who do they think they are? Prancing in like this, taking my job. And what about my boss? You know, this person that you have a good relationship with, and now all of a sudden you think they're not supporting me, they don't understand me. They're against me, actually. They're against me. So much for trusting anyone. And... Of course, that's just one scenario, but don't we go through this a million times a day? Often in our minds, you know, the stories that we, that we build in our minds that have a kernel of truth. There, there is something we're basing it on, and then we just we take it and we run. And so you can see why sympathetic joy which is the third of the immeasurables, and it is the cultivation of joy at others' well-being, is such a profound spiritual practice and so challenging. And I've always thought, you know, because it's very important, although the focus is on another's happiness, if you're at such a point where you can feel boundless joy at someone else's happiness, then there's no way that you are not joyful also. So it never leaves you out. It's just that the emphasis, the turning towards, is towards another's well-being, towards another's good fortune, and the cultivation of that, of that joy, that kind of joy. And so, of course, in order to be able to, to even give rise to such a quality, to such a feeling, is you have to come from a place of abundance, a place of confidence, not a place of lack. You have to come from a place of grace, if I may use such a word. Grace as in graciousness, as in gracefulness. You are happy. I am happy too, then. It's a very unself-centered practice, a very unself-centering practice. So if at any point you are, you are wrapped up, in something, you are wrapped up in one of these strong, disturbing emotions, turn to another. Turn to another and either wish them happiness and well-being or offer something, give something. So I was saying to, to someone, it is impossible to both be angry and wishing someone at someone and wish them well-being at the same time. You can't actually do that. And we also understand that others can be happy even when we haven't done anything to contribute to their happiness. Because Khandra Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher, who has a very pointed way, you know, she says sometimes we, because we're, we are so self-referential, we kind of get offended, we get jealous that others are happy and we didn't have anything to do with it. She says this practice is really... Um, 
predicated on your trust that you don't need to make anyone, anybody else happy. That it's not your job, it's not your responsibility. That they can take care of it all by themselves. And that then you can be happy at their happiness. And she says, many learned and spiritually inclined people are the unhappiest people. Their learnedness makes them very critical about what's right and wrong, how things should and shouldn't be done, what true nature, what, what is true nature or not, what's provisional or definitive, and what about the three things to do, four things to abandon, and five things to cultivate. Which is so true. You know, Buddhism has so many lists, and there are all of these things to do, abandon, cultivate, realize, practice, actualize. And it's, it is true. It is true. We, and not necessarily that it has to be this way, but it, that it can be. I remember that myself completely. After being at the monastery for a year and then leaving and spending a few months back home, frankly, just looking down my nose at others because they were not spiritual, but I was. And, 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 and so critical about what is right and wrong. And, and Zen, unfortunately, sometimes can lend itself to it, you know, with our very straight lines, our very precise schedules, our very um, uh, deliberate forms. And it is not what it is built for. It's not to make us tighter. All of the straight lines and the forms, all of the various containers are so that we can be free. And so that that judgment, whether it's turned towards self or whether it's turned towards others, is still judgment, no matter how um, spiritual we may think it is. Because we really can make anything into our image if we so choose. That is the power of self. And that is also our work, to see through these filters so that we can, in fact, be at ease. And so the, these, the first four, anger, aggression, pride, and envy, and all of their variations, they are really they are kept in place by ignorance. That is the common denominator. Trungpa Rinpoche used to call it the prime mover. It is the crank that keeps that wheel of desire and aversion turning. It's the, it's the very drive that, that causes us to hold tightly to what we want, is that attachment, and avoid what we don't want. It is the root of the I, the me that wants and fights and protects. It is not understanding the true nature of things, including this thing. But then there is the moment of turning, the moment when we realize, wait a second, this is not how I want to live. Trapped in my own mind, trapped in that storm of my emotions, my fears, my insecurities. This can't possibly be all there is to me. That is not all there is to me. But I don't know how to break out of this entrenchment. I need help. And that is what Wicca is doing. 
That is what every single one of us did the moment we walked through either this door or some other door where we turned towards another and we said, in, in however way we said it, please help me. This is exactly what Siddhartha was doing. I mean, he was ostensibly asking his father for permission, but he really was saying, I can't do this without you. No one can. And even despite the stories, the Buddha didn't do it alone. He had to have all that time in the palace, all of his comfort, all of the luxury, all of the the good material comforts, And then the good upbringing that his parents gave him, enough stability to turn towards a path, until he reached that point where he knew, I need to leave home. And then he sought teachers. He got the support of Sujata, the woman who, after he had spent those six years doing these intense ascetic practices, and he was at the brink of death. And he's realizing, I'm not any closer to what I was looking for. He decides to leave the ascetics and to stop fasting. And this young woman sees him and brings him some rice porridge. porridge. And he eats. And then he goes searching for a place to sit down, for a place which he called a place that would be good for striving. And he sits down, and yes, he realizes himself alone, But in that moment of realization, everyone comes with him. And this is exactly what we do, too, when we leave home. Not not leaving home in a monastic kind of way, but leaving the comfort, the seeming security of the known, the familiar. That moment when we turn where we don't yet know, but we sense has great possibility. Some eight, eight or so years after that day at that restaurant, the day when I realized I don't want that. I don't want that conventional life that will be where my worth, I think that was really it, where my worth will be determined by my acquisitions, my achievements, my worldly power. About eight or so years later, I was at the monastery sitting one evening, and it was the end of uh, Sashin, one of our winter Sashins. And I had decided to sit late that night because the following day was my birthday. And I had come to the monastery out of college and was staying for a year at the time. And so I had been there for a few months by that point and had been really drawn to Zazen right from the beginning, even before I moved into the monastery. When I found Zazen, I thought I had found the most powerful way to study my mind, to study my body, to study my being. And so I went to the monastery and decided to spend more time there, and so I was, I was doing that. And so that night I had been sitting, you know, I, I, I had sat all of Sashin, and then I had been sitting late that night. 
And at a certain point, it was just, it got too cold. The, the, the heat gets turned off in the zendo at night, and so I just couldn't stand to sit there anymore. And it was probably sometime after midnight. And so I, I got up, and I went up to the altar, and I offered incense. I was by myself. And then I left. I was just going to go change and go up to my cabin, go to bed. And I walked down the stairs by the main entrance, the foyer. And we used to have a plaque. It's not there now. We moved it. But we used to have a plaque with a saying by Master Dogen that says, only those concerned with the question of life and death need enter here. And I remember so clearly taking a step down and turning and looking at this plaque and, and being struck kind of with this force. And the thought, once again, very clear, very strong thought that came to my mind was, I'm a monk. And I knew that it was true. I knew that it was true. I had just gotten to the monastery. I was turning 23. It took me 10 years from that day, more or less, to actually become ordained as a monk. But all during that time, I was, I was held, really, by that thought, by that conviction. And I had no idea what that meant. Again, just as before, I had no idea what that meant, fortunately. Because at 23, I couldn't possibly know what it would mean to leave home. But that was okay, because I needed that time to find out for myself, slowly, what would be required of me. I'm still learning what is required of me. And so far, I'll, I'll say that it's, it seems to be more than I think I'm ready for, very often, but never too much that I can't respond, never too much that I that I'm feel completely frozen or overwhelmed, which seems exactly right, because if... If How would we grow if we only did what we thought we were capable of? And it's those, those, those moments which sometimes, again, they're not so clear. Sometimes it's really just a whisper. It's really just a whisper. Somebody walks by and sees the sign outside and says, Zen Center, let me check it out. You know, perhaps eight out of ten people that do that don't come back. But then that last one does and takes it further. Often, and for perhaps quite a while, still not knowing why. And I always say to someone, try to explain why you're doing this to your Aunt Mary in Ohio, who knows nothing about Buddhism. And if you can say to her very clearly why it is that you're spending hour after hour on a little three-by-four cushion, doing ostensibly nothing but being with your breath, if you can explain that to her, you'll be fine. Without any Buddhist terminology, without any even necessarily any reference to suffering or anything like that, just very simply in your own words, why is it that you do this? and continue to do it.
So we leave home when we say, I've tried everything and still I cannot find the way. So please, will you help me? And this is really a moment of utter vulnerability, of utter humility. And because of that, it's a moment of incredible power. Everything becomes possible when we say, I don't know, but I want to. When we say this and we truly mean it. And Bodhidharma's reply, bring me your mind and I will set it at ease for you. And he sounds so certain. I've got this. Just bring me your mind. I'll set it at ease for you. I'll take care of it. Which again, we have to understand what does he really mean? Because I've certainly had many, many moments where I wanted my teacher to set my mind at ease, where I wanted him to take my pain away, to take my suffering. When I was working on Mu in our first, usually the first koan that a student works with, I mean, I was wrung out of the Doksan room hundreds, maybe, no, not quite thousands of times, but maybe hundreds of times. And it was, no, 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 not yet, not yet. Keep working on it. Not yet, not yet, not yet. And at one point I remember thinking, kind of desperately, why aren't you helping me? Just help me. And I couldn't see, at the time it was Daidoroshi, I couldn't see he was helping me, just not in the way that I wanted. Not in the way that I thought I could use. Bring me your mind and I will set it at ease. And so Wika, Wika goes searching. And this, this version of the story doesn't even say that. But there's usually there's a line. He goes. He goes searching for his mind. And we have no idea how long that is. But we can be sure that it was not an hour or two. It was not a period of zazen. It was not a few days. It was not a few weeks. Or a few months even. And these are the, those moments in the koan. Shugen Roshi has been speaking of this lately, where you have, to, you have to really put yourself in it. You have to really feel that going away, searching, and then coming back, what that must have been like for him. And Shibayama, in his commentary to this koan, speaks to that. He says, where is the mind that is not at ease? Who is it that is seeking it? Is the mind square or round? White or red? Does it exist or not? The mind does exist, but it is so absolutely affirmative that it is at the same time negative. Is it not? If it does exist, bring it right here. How cuttingly sharp this demand is. Wicca must have been pushed down into the abyss of despair by it. He was driven to the wall. Intellect was of no avail. Reasoning was no help. He was not aware whether he was alive or dead. He could not even utter a moaning cry. This must have been Wicca's actual situation. Isn't that a bit dramatic again? Or is it? Is it? 
Or is it a good description of what happens when you realize you can no longer rely on what you believe, on all your ideas, on all your stories, your justifications that have kept you firmly entrenched in who you are? I do not believe that Bodhidharma means to push Wicca down into the abyss of despair. If he is a a, a great teacher, which he was, what he wants for this aspiring student is for him to be completely free. So he doesn't want him to suffer. He doesn't want to make things worse. But he does have to tolerate the, the utter discomfort of watching somebody else struggle and knowing that Huika has to do it on his own. There is no other way to help him. And so, from Wika's perspective or from our perspective, you know, you don't know where you're stepping. You don't know if you're at the very edge of a cliff, of a precipice, at the entrance of this yawning cave that's going to swallow you up. You don't know what is in front of you. But at least, at the very least, you know that the way that you've come is not the way that you want to go. Because you know what's back there. You've been there. And so whether it's the, it is this yawning darkness or it's this edge of a cliff, at a certain point, you know you have to step forward. I've searched for it everywhere, but I cannot find it, is what Wika says when he returns. And Bodhidharma answers, there. I've set it at ease for you. This is what I want to take up tomorrow, the mind at ease. But let me just reiterate the the importance. You know, when we are on our own path and we're sitting on that cushion and we're struggling with whatever it is that we're struggling or we're doing well and we feel like we're sailing along, we can't really see the path. We can just see that step right in front of us, which is exactly as it should be. And so sometimes it's difficult to to have perspective and to understand that all along, even in those moments of sometimes um, sheer struggle, that we are, something's happening, that we are practicing. We're still on that cushion, in the sense that we're still showing up for our zazen, that something is happening. That that search and that not finding and not finding and not finding and not finding is the only way that you find. It can't be, it can't be otherwise. Which, of course, we know, but not really. Not when it really comes down to it. You know, people say, you know, I've been practicing, I've been practicing, and my mind is so noisy. Right. Right. It's going to take a little bit of time. If you've used your mind a certain way for decades, it's going to take more than a few months or a year even, or two, to learn to use it differently.
So when I spoke recently of these great um, essentials of Zen, great faith, great doubt, great determination, into the determination really is built in patience. We do have to be utterly determined because it's the only way that we will break free. But we also have to be infinitely patient. So let me leave you with this fragment of a poem by May Sarton called The Work of Happiness. No one has heard thought or listened to a mind. Where people have lived in inwardness, the air is charged with blessing and thus bless. Windows look out on mountains and the walls are kind. Let me just read that again. No one has heard thought or listened to a mind. But where people have lived in inwardness, the air is charged with blessing and thus bless. Windows look out on mountains and the walls are kind. For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.